Russell for words that kind of words than I really deserve to be given or to hear. And it is a privilege to be here, invited to come and minister the word of God to folk here in Eskom this morning. It's been, well, it's been a journey. Russell, myself, and uh, a fair few other faces who may one day also be in this pulpit here, friends that uh, we have made, and I hope that uh, we will be making with you as a church and praying for you. You're now on my list of churches to pray for, and uh, my way up there, just passing Doncaster, remembering Gareth James there at the Evangelical Church. So South Yorkshire is, is very much uh, on my radar once again in that way. And it's a rich fellowship that we have in the gospel. It's a great work that we're part of and a great gospel that between us all there we are seeking to preach and proclaim. And uh, with Russell now here as your pastor, it's good to meet Frank and uh, getting to know the history of this church too. And uh, what, a, what a good history of God's dealings and of his mercy. May that continue and may that ever be fruitful. Now I want to read this morning in the word of God from Luke chapter 9. I'm going to read from verse 28 to the end of verse 36. Luke chapter 9 from verse 28 to the end of verse 36. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, that he took Peter, John, and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. For Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. The voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. And that is the word of God. Well, the title of the sermon this morning is An Assisted Death. Just draw our attention there in particular to verse 31, where Moses and Elijah appeared in glory. That's really the glory of Christ, the glory of heaven that uh, here was disclosed, revealed in a way that was quite exceptional in his earthly ministry. And they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What interesting words that those are. His decease that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now normally isn't it the fact that we urge people to live, rare it would be that we urge people to die, we would more normally be urging them to live. We come across people who are 
are a little bit depressed if they have dropped down a bit we would want to urge them forwards keep going keep pressing on if they're christian we would urge them forwards glory beckons but there's his presence in this life to enjoy and we can believe that be confident in it so live we would say if we find and we do find people at times who are suicidal and uh, we come around to an anniversary actually at Christ baptist church that uh, russell will well remember and his brother ryan myself too when a neighbour uh, committed suicide, somebody we knew actually who worshipped with us at Christ Baptist Church. And we had met with her on the occasion, urged her to live, much to live for, live, live for Christ, live for his glory. But that didn't quite end that way. And terminally ill people, well we know they're terminally ill, well we're all terminally ill aren't we, we're all one day going to die. But those who are perhaps nearing the end, we wouldn't urge them well die quickly. Have it finished and be gone. Much taken up, aren't we, with what's called assisted death, being the title of our sermon this morning. I'm taking it somewhat differently from the context in which in society it's spoken of, but this, this idea, oh, older people, uh, those of you who are sick, you're a bit of a burden here, you must be feeling it yourselves, will hasten your death. It's now, uh, what I hope, isn't it, going to become legal that we can administer knowingly wittingly as doctors something that will hasten your death and the fact is this is the argument and this is the danger isn't it a burden that you'll be to your family you'll be relieving them of that and we can see that the room there for wickedness and mischief is huge and how that will play on the minds of the elderly and those who are sick chronically ill that well maybe they should bring their life to a premature close Maybe they should seek some medication and get some doctor. The idea will be one day it'll be legal. We were pleased that it was defeated recently, but we know about these people, they'll bring it back again. This idea of helping somebody to die, we find quite abhorrent in that way, in the normal sense. But here were Moses and Elijah, representatives, if you will, of the law and the prophets. Brought here men who were speaking with the Lord Jesus. Extraordinary. But they were brought back here to be visiting the earth on this mountain. Not quite sure which one it is. And of course it was only a very select company of the apostles who were there to witness it. Peter, James and John. Well, witness it they did. And then they saw Moses and Elijah. Now they didn't speak about it at that time. We read that at the end of the passage we just read. But... Peter was at liberty of speaking of it at a later time, for we find him referring to this, this glory that he saw, the majesty that they witnessed on the mountain, 2 Peter chapter 1, and just reading from verse 16, Peter says, and how people today need to hear these words, he says, For we do not follow cunningly devised fables, when we may know to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honour and glory. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. There he is, reporting what previously at the end there that we read, that they told no one in those days any of the things they had seen, but later on, after those days, when Peter was now 
writing epistles, preparing people for actually his own decease, that he was going to be leaving this tender body as the Lord had shown him. And he writes of this glory that they beheld, the voice from heaven, all of the things which were there present, along with Moses and Elijah, the Lord himself. What a sight, seeing his appearance changed. They, they'd lived with him, hadn't they? They'd been on the road with him. They knew this man, they knew he was fully human. That they were assured of. They, they'd seen him sleep. They had to wake him on occasion. They'd eaten with him, saw his need to eat. But now that was all set aside, and they had a glimpse of something as essential divinity, didn't they, here? The God-man. But yes, man, surely, but God too. And here, something that uh, they never saw again, this was not for them to see every day. Indeed, it wasn't for all the apostles to see. Indeed, it was just these three. But as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. Transcendence. Something of his true divinity. His essential divinity. Not that you could have seen that and lived. But here was a, a little appearing of it, something of it, a portion of it. And it was too much for them, wasn't it, there, that uh, they, they collapsed under the weight of it, they were heavy with sleep. And that wasn't because it was boring, uh, it wasn't because uh, it had been a pretty tiring day, climbing that mountain had been tiring. This just overcame them. This was too much for their senses to bear. And it may have been a mercy of God that they didn't die on the spot, that they simply were cast into this sleep, this slumber. But that is the effect that it had upon them. And there they were, and there is his glory, and there is something really what, in a sense, truly belongs to him, to have there the, the radiance and the brilliance, the unapproachability that is really inherent in essential divinity. Who can see? Who can come near to this? And yet there they were. And the subject that they were talking about there he is in his glory. Peter wanted to keep this, didn't he? Let's preserve this moment. Let's make a tabernacle, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. This, this seems to be the, the proper place and your, your true nature and the dignity belongs to you. Let's hold on to this. But no, even there, in that glory in which he was now, resplendent and, and clothed and the dignity and the honour that, that largely speaking was never given to him on earth when he lived among such sinners. But the fact was they weren't speaking about more glory. They weren't talking about all that belongs to you and is rightfully yours and how you should be given this, this dignity and this treatment. They were talking about his decease. That was the subject. That was the reason that the glory had come, that John had beheld his glory. It wasn't that it should simply be preserved, as Peter wanted to do, just to hold on to this here, that this is proper, this is deserving, this, this is who you really are, and this is how we should really treat you. No, not to be. And the subject of all subjects, the pressing subject, for you wouldn't. Have this moment, have Moses and Elijah brought back to be here walking on the earth to talk about minor subjects, trivial subjects, the weather, what we're going to do tomorrow. No, 
to talk about the weightiest of subjects, the reason for his appearing, the reason for this glorious person whose glory was largely concealed, the humanity that clothed him there, largely concealing this reality that was always there, his essential divinity. But it was his death that was to be the subject. And Moses and Elijah were not there, trying to stop it from happening. They're, they weren't there, so they were trying to deter this, that this shouldn't happen to you. That was Peter's mistake, wasn't it, previously? Well, we just returned to Matthew chapter 16, when he had, not that flesh and blood had shown him this, but his father who's in heaven, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that you're not a kind of revival of Elijah or one of the prophets but that you are truly the Son of God. And it was then that the Lord began to explain to him what he would have to suffer, the things that would be done to him. Verse 21, Matthew 16, let me read from there. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, they are talking about that place, weren't they? On the Mount of Transfiguration. And that he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day, that's his decease. That was the subject that Moses and Elijah were there speaking to our Lord about. Well, how did Peter treat this? Well, much in a way, like when he's trying to keep the moment on the mountain and, and provide a sort of tent for each of these uh, illustrious people to be in. That this is what you should have. And he says, um, he, yeah, in verse 22, Matthew 16, that Peter took him, our Lord, aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. God, you're too wonderful to exalt it. The miracles you're doing are too spectacular. The impact that you're having, and surely you can continue to have in the future. Why, we're only talking Israel. If you travel the world, well, our world will be at your feet, surely, at this rate. And of course, that is not what was required. The Lord turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offence to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Those of Elijah were mindful of the things of God when they spoke, because the things of God required that he should suffer at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Oh yes, we note, and be raised the third day, but not before that suffering, that dying, that killing, that decease which Peter was reluctant to hear about in Matthew 16, still doesn't really seem to have grasped on the Mount of Transfiguration, though he's not trying here to rebuke this morbid conversation, talking about death, accomplishing a death, conspiring this death. So Moses and Elijah become accomplices in some, some death that, that surely shouldn't happen in this way. Immoral, cruel. No, far from it. Absolutely necessary. And to emphasize it and to make sure that people are on message with this. So the voice comes from heaven out of the cloud in verse 35. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Hear him. Hear what he has to say. Take it as gospel that if it's to talk about death and decease and suffering many things at the hands of the scribes and the chief priests and the elders. And then being handed over to the Gentiles who will mock him and scourge him. Here, this is not an accident. This is not a mistake. This is absolutely essential. 
while even in this moment of glory, in this revealing of his essential being, the God-man, unmistakable, nothing could be as bright as this. But the thing that was to be discussed there with Moses and Elijah was his decease, an assisted death that was to be accomplished in Jerusalem. So really, my first heading, Christ's upcoming death was no secret. It was no secret. Moses and Elijah, as representatives of the Old Covenant, they were speaking of that which the spiritually alert, tuned-in people of the Old Covenant time knew about. It's going to require death. There was going to have to be a significant death, a future death. It would, in a sense, end all there. And the death was there to be seen day in, day out, wasn't it? In all the sacrifices that were to be made. How many? How often? How frequently? There were the statutory ones, the, uh, the Sabbath sacrifices, the ones at the special feasts, as well as all the ones that worshippers would, would conduct. That they would bring their offering, their burnt offerings, or their, their grain offerings there, their sin offerings, trespass offerings, all the various peace offerings. Death, every time, was there. So some <coughs> creature, and it was all carefully prescribed, what kind of creature, what had to be done with it, which parts could be eaten by the priests, by the family, by whoever else, where the blood had to be sprinkled, what had to be done with everything afterwards. All carefully prescribed. But it is that it had to be death. There was death. And it's right there in the beginning. So in Genesis chapter 3, in those memorable words, which were spoken firstly to the serpent, but we are all meant to hear. Genesis 3, verse 14, after the fall. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Get the injury. Unavoidable injury. The fatal injury is going to be to Satan, and all of the hold that he has upon you. That's, that's going to end. But in the process, this promised Messiah, this Saviour to come, is going to find his heel bruised. He's going to suffer injury. There it is, right at the beginning. And so no wonder, every time that the worshipper there was to come before God, the reminder was always there that death is needed. Somebody has to die. At the moment, uh, it might be a bull uh, or a lamb. Uh, at the moment, it might be a dove, it, it might be a goat. But something, somewhere there has to be blood. Somewhere in all of this, there has to be death to remind of the fact that fellowship with God is always on God's terms. God suffers sinners to draw near, but will only suffer them to draw near and to continue in fellowship and enjoy his blessing on the basis of blood that is shed. A reminder of sin. And an acknowledgement on the part of the worshipper that that is really their desert. The, the creature dying there represents them. But really it should have been them there. If we were following the strict law of justice and holiness, then death would be the only outcome. But no God suffers people to come in his mercy. 
And so we read, don't we, in Isaiah 53, again, such well-known words here. But yes, death, death writ large, death at all the sacrifices that are being made, reminders there that if we don't have fellowship with God, it's going to be on the basis of sin atoned for. So just to read a few verses from Isaiah 53, from verse 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. That was the nature of it, what was to come ahead. And when the Ethiopian eunuch was there, travelling back from Jerusalem, and he was in this passage, wasn't he, reading there, we imagine, from a scroll, when Philip had been instructed to come and to draw near. Because that was puzzled. Whom does this speak? Is it of the prophet himself, or is he speaking of another? And we learn that from that very point, that very scripture, that Philip preached Jesus to him. Death. Yes. This that he is about to accomplish in Jerusalem that Moses and Elijah was speaking of had been trailed all through the Old Testament times. There in the sacrifices, there in the prophecies. So no wonder Moses representing the law is there. Elijah as a representative of the prophets is there. For they knew of these things. No secret here. No secret either to his parents when he was born and grew up as that child in, in first in Bethlehem and then when they transferred having gone through Egypt to, to Nazareth. And yet seemingly there as they saw that tender precious life and knew what a duty they had been entrusted with from heaven to care for the needs of this child. They knew what was upcoming somewhere some hint of it. And so in Simeon as they take uh, the child there to the, to the temple, present him, and says of this child, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There it is. Speaking of that death that is to come. Or when they find the child, age 12, <laughs> missed it in their company. They'd been up to the, the feast in Jerusalem, were heading back, travelled there a while before they realised he was not in their company. <coughs> Turned to Jerusalem, spent three days searching for him, find him in the temple. And we know the words, they're famous. Luke 2, verse 49, he said to them, why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Go to the temple. The sacrifices were made where the whole nature of the worship was built around those sacrifices. And he knew it was his father's business that that was to be him. One day it would be his life that would be offered. One day he would replace and abolish forever the need for any further sacrifice of any more bulls, any more goats, any more sheep. For he himself would account for the sins of his people. 
No secret to his parents, no secret to John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And how does the Lamb of God do that? By living in resplendent glory and having, as it were, a perpetual life of ease, of, of some special status. Far from it, dying. He would be there cut off in that way. And the Lord himself, knowing what was to be accomplished at Jerusalem, knowing that that was his mission, his identity. That's what the law and the prophets testified of him. And later on, he would open up the scriptures, wouldn't he, in all of those points, all of the teachings of Moses and Elijah as a representative of the prophets. They speak of me and of my sufferings. And of the glory to come, but not until that suffering. My second heading, he accomplished his death to the letter. If this is something that has to happen, they're far from saying no, as Peter once said, no, far be it from you, Lord, these things shall not happen to you. Moses and Elijah, and all of Scripture saying, yes, these things must happen to you. Then he fulfilled it to the letter. And what was such willingness and such readiness, doubtless strengthened by this conversation, with Moses and Elijah, doubtless strengthened by the voice which came from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But still having to do it. Still having to be that person who is fulfilling scripture. Still having to be that sacrificial lamb. That Passover lamb. That, that lamb, that bull, that goat, the scapegoat. Fulfilling all of the types of the Old Testament. Everything that those sacrifices meant was going to be brought together, focused in his death, uniquely, perfectly, wonderfully. And he lived according to that, accomplishing his decease there in Jerusalem, willing it, promoting it, not arguing against it, wrestling with it famously in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing the weight of what would come upon him, bearing the sin of the people he'd come to die for. Oh yes, it was real. But he was going to accomplish it. He would accomplish it knowing that actually he would be betrayed. That this would be part of the whole mechanism whereby his decease, his death would be accomplished. That one of his own intimate group of people, okay, not one of those who was on the mountain or who was there when he raised Jairus' daughter, but nevertheless, part of the company, Judas, Judas Iscariot. And that he would betray him. In the light of all that he'd heard, and all that he'd seen, all of the miracles that had been performed, it wasn't as if Judas was absent when those happened. He was there, he saw them all, he heard it all. After those famous or infamous 30 pieces of silver, he'd be betrayed. And the Lord knew that. And he knew it was in Scripture. And he didn't argue. He didn't rail against it, but accepted it. He actually expedited the whole process in the garden when the, the, the Judas came with the, the detachment of troops that had been given and uh, the temple guard to arrest him, coming there with their, their clubs and their swords as if to arrest a robber. And he actually steps forward. Whom do you see? Accomplishing his death. Bringing to pass the very things. Not resisting it. Not presenting difficulty. But actually offering himself. Making it in the dark easy to be identified, which then Judas did, betraying him with a kiss. No angels 
Said he could have called upon 12 legions of angels. And I'm sure in that he was not exhausting, as it were, the company of angels that could have helped, could have come, could have destroyed all those evildoers, taken him safely to glory, back to that resplendent radiance. But no, he didn't call upon them. And he offered no defence for himself, called no witnesses to his trial. And then when Pilate is there, the one who has the power to put him to death or to spare him, Oh, he could have pulled right there. He had no authority, Pilate, other than that which was given to him from heaven. And though the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and in a sense that he has given that authority to Pilate, but he doesn't pull rank on him, he's going to accomplish his death to the letter. And there he is, even urging himself forward in it. So in Luke chapter 13, and prior to coming into Jerusalem, and we read there in verses uh, 31 to 33 uh, that this, the, the, the way in which there the death is going to take place. Because he learns on that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Well, you and I heard somebody in town wanted to kill you or me. We might take the advice and get out of town quick. But no, he's going to accomplish his death. And he said to him, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. The third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. He willed it. He was determined it should happen. He set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And Herod could threaten what he would or could plan what he might, but nothing was going to stop our Lord dying in the way he would, fulfilling it to the letter, with all the involvement of the people that would be there, the nature of the death being lifted up, and that was the cross, and he was signifying by what kind of death he would die. And in this, refused any help, take shelter here, quick, Herod's looking for you, get out of town. But urged himself forwards, and even in the time when the weight of it, the Garden of Gethsemane, he felt to the greatest extent. And angels came and strengthened him. Heaven's assistance in this death, as Moses and Elijah had been there. The angels are given. All of heaven is helping him, assisting him to accomplish this death. But he must die in Jerusalem. And my final heading, so simple, isn't it, really, this? It was accomplished for our sakes. It was accomplished for our sakes, for flocks, gatherings of the Lord's people like this and like in Christ, that, that we should be beneficiaries. And we should sing the hymns we've been singing with gladness of heart and with reality and meaning because we too have received the benefit of what Moses and Elijah were speaking to our Lord about on the Mount of Transfiguration and what he foresaw in his own death, having to die in Jerusalem for no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Knowing he was fulfilling, doing his father's business, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, all the prophecies that foresaw the suffering servant who would have to die, who would be cut off, who would have no, no, as it were, generation of his own family die. He was going to, in that way, be prematurely brought to an end. And it was all for our sakes. And all the assistance of heaven, and all the assistance of Scripture, 
We might say the assistance to the Holy Spirit there in the humanity of our Lord was given over to that task of accomplishing what was necessary for our salvation. For today, we could sing with open faces, reflecting the glory that we too have been saved from our sins. Everything, all of this, all that went before, all that's happening to this day, that all hinges upon our Lord Jesus Christ and for our sakes. And who are we? Friends, who are we? Were we the above average in this? Were we just a bit advanced on your neighbour at number 32, for instance? Yeah, just a cut above them. I'm a bit smarter. I went to church as a child. I went to Sunday school. I had Christian parents. None of that, in the end, made a difference. None of that was what counted. It was that God had fully intended in his son's dying that you and I should be the beneficiaries that what he was accomplishing in his decease will be something that we one day would receive the knowledge of it, that our stubbornness will be overcome, our resistance, our hostility, all the ways in which we are clueless spiritually. And the light should dawn, that a new birth should be given, and we should suddenly see I can remember when I was converted. <laughs> I wrote afterwards, now I understand where he died on the cross. <laughs> I knew he died on the cross, and I knew some facts about it and the rest of it. But now I knew why. And he had to. If ever I, or you, or any of us were going to be saved from our sins. Because actually, at the moment, if you're not a Christian, well, I don't know, strangers to me, I'm a stranger to you. I don't know. State of your soul. Perhaps you don't even know. Perhaps you're a little confused in it. But I say this, if this reality of power has not somehow filled your being, that, that this is everything, that, that, that this is absolutely everything, him dying on the cross is the absolute everything for you, then you at the moment are actually part of your own assisted death. You, you are dying. And you don't even know it, perhaps, in the spiritual sense, your body, you might say, sure enough, I'm beginning to get the message on that. But no, spiritually, you're indeed dead already. And that, that death will just carry on into eternity. That absence of knowing God's help and blessing, that absence of experience of his grace and mercy, that will just continue. It'll be sad and tragic. It'll be torment. It'll be darkness. And you are standing against that which is given, freely given. That's how we sing, it was freely given, a freely given sacrifice. Something that was for the benefit of sinners, not some kind of strange invention of heaven, some convoluted story here just to give us something to think about on a Sunday, but for people, for their salvation. And until you see it, you're conspiring bring about your own death. You, you're accomplishing that. You haven't got Moses and Elijah on your side you, telling you what the law and the prophets say, that you need a saviour who is going to die in the place of sinners, because that's what the wages of sin is. And you need to have peace with him. You need to believe in him. If you're not hearing that, I don't know quite who you have got advising you in your right ear, or they're advising you in your left ear. But it's not the Holy Spirit. It's not the Bible. It's not God. And if we read here, as we read at the beginning, where did that curse lie? We lay upon the devil. 
I'm afraid you're listening to his advice and his counsel. He is the one speaking there. And he may be speaking to you about life and making great promises to you. But I'm sorry, he's got not your good will at heart. And he's intending your death. And he is going to help you accomplish your death. It won't be in Jerusalem, it may be here in Ascan or Doncaster, Shevon, Rotherham, I don't know. But he'll accomplish it. And you will have been a willing accomplice in your own death. My friend, it is time to put down your enmity. It is time to stop resisting. It's time to stop fighting. Where else do you read these things? Find me a book, find me a religion, find me anything that gets near to the extraordinary wonder of this. It's power mm-hmm. and it's reality. And all these change lives and we can assemble millions of people here on this earth at the moment. And this is their everything. Where else? Because there's nothing else like this that God should so love this wicked world that we are favoured with his son enduring these things, the cross and its agony. I've not dwelt on that. At any length. But all of that, for the sake of our soul, that we can be forgiven and pardoned. And that the death that we deserve and that we're busy conspiring to bring about, and which will be the death sentence at the judgment throne. But he came to undo all the works of the evil one. And he came to give you and me a future and a hope, to give us everlasting life, to bring us in finally one day into the company of Moses and Elijah. Not the devil in his demons. Who are you listening to? You're told, aren't you? Hear, hear him. That was the voice from heaven. Hear him. You must hear him. You must hear him on the cross. You must hear what the cross is saying to you. That there is pardon. There that blood is shed. That should be your blood and mine. In, in one sense, in our physical death, but almost there as though the whole of our life is gone. And we deserve that. And God's justice would require that. And until and unless we're forgiven, until and unless we have seen that this accomplishing of his death, this assisted death, had to be so, and that you want that be yours, to count for you, that you want that blood to be the blood that was shed for you, when you see it, you'll never be the same again. You'll never unsee it. You'll never stop singing about it. You'll never stop coming on the church on a Sunday to hear about it. You'll love him and you'll keep on loving him as I trust I will to my dying day. And this message of hope, this message of joy, this death that is actually the death of death and is the open gateway into heaven itself will never weary you either, never weary you in your hearing. Friends, This is the day, is it not, of salvation? Now could be that time. Will you delay? Will you stand apart? Will you read what we read in here of the identity of this person and the work he came to do and that it was for the sake of sinners? Refuse him? Will you deny him? Will you stand apart from this? When here it compels surely your full attention, compels your obedience, which is repentance, trusting in him. So may you never lose a sense of wonder and marvel. May I never lose a sense of wonder and marvel that here was accomplished a death that has brought to us life, life from glory to come, but life here today, April the 24th, 2022, in Aston or in Christ. You were in Jackson.
and that is the very substance of life itself. May he bless each and every one of you this morning. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to stand in this pulpit and proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified.